The early church leader James says this, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But turn on the TV, do a quick scan of the latest news, or look at the tendency of your own heart, and it is clear to see that we often act in the exact opposite way. Anger comes easily. We speak quickly and carelessly, and the patience to listen and understand is, at times, hard to find. But the challenge of our faith in Jesus remains. In a world where it seems everyone is tearing each other down, we are called to be builders of God's better world. Well, good morning. As uh, Pastor David said, my name is Johnny, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of your pastors here at First Methodist Mansfield. And I, I just, it's my joy to be here with you uh, this morning in worship, chance to worship together and, and to share with you uh, this, this third installment of the Be a Builder series. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, it's in the New Testament if you're new to the Bible. Uh, if you do not have your Bible with you, we have blue ones provided in all of our pews. Uh, you can use that Bible. If you are using that blue Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on page 1772. Now we have been uh, in this series, so as you're finding that, I'm going to reset the series for you just a little bit. It's called Be a Builder. And we're calling it Be a Builder because what we want to do uh, is we want to examine uh, the life that we are called to as followers of Jesus, as people of faith, to be builders of God's better world. And we know that we do this in a number of ways. Pastor David mentioned some of those ways in which we do that. And the way we uh, share with one another uh, our lives um, through groups, Sunday school and small groups. The way in which uh, we live generously and we give generously uh, to help support uh, builders um, like uh, Priscilla and, and James who are, are working across the world in places that we will never go, places that we will never see. Uh, but places that we are partnered with God and with them in the way uh, God is working and moving. We do this through many ways. Um, but one of the ways that we really want to focus in on is the way we do that with our words as well. Here again these words from Ephesians chapter 4 that David has shared with you for the past few weeks. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. As Paul shares this about the way we use our words with one another, Notice his goal here, building. And I know you've heard David say, and you've probably noticed, that this, this series comes at quite an intentional time. If you haven't noticed uh, the season that we're in in our country, there, there are words that are shared, there's rhetoric that is used that often follows our human impulse to tear down when there is difference, to tear down when there is division among us, to tear down when there's disagreement in order for one person to lose and the other person to win, for another person to be wrong and us to be right. And often we, we fall susceptible to that ourselves. And we fall short of that calling to build. Rather, or uh, of call, and rather we follow that impulse to tear down. But this impulse that we have, this tendency that we have as human beings is not unique to an election year. This is something that's part of our, our frail human condition. That's, a, that's been a part of us since the dawn of time. And when we find difference and division, there's this instinct, this impulse in us to tear down the other rather than to build up. Yet we, as people of faith, as people who have 
had this audacious calling and this, this idea that we're going to try to follow Jesus and live like Jesus with our life, we have this call in our life to build rather than to tear down. So this is what we're looking at, and we're going to continue in, in uh, installment number three of this series, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So as we dive in, we're going to be looking at this first letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the people, the church in Corinth. If you're new to the Bible, that's how we get the names for our, our, our books of the Bible that we look at. The first letter of Paul, first to the church in Corinth, Corinthians, right? The first Corinthians. So Paul, as part of his ministry on earth... Part of his ministry was to encourage and build up these new faith communities that were, uh, that were, that were blooming here. And, and after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, these, these little faith communities that were building around this idea uh, of being a builder and, and following Christ. And, and Paul's call was to nurture them and to encourage them. And he did that by writing them letters. And those letters are the things that we have preserved for us in our scriptures here today. And sometimes as part of that encouragement... It's part of that nurturing and part of that building up. Paul had to get on to the church a time or two. Paul had to write one of those wait till your daddy gets home sort of letters. <laughs> and, and 1 Corinthians is exactly one of those letters. And it also just happens to be the longest letter that we have of Paul's preserved for us in the Bible. So he had a lot to say to the church in Corinth. But he had a lot to say because there was a lot at stake. He had a lot riding on this. He, he knew what the Corinthian church was capable of. He knew the environment uh, that Corinth was. So he knew this church had the, had the potential to have a great impact on the people there. But he was discouraged. And you're going to see in our passage here that he was discouraged because there was this infighting in the church. They couldn't get along. They were, they were jealous of each other and they were quarreling with each other. Because they each decided they, they, they liked a different person that, that, that taught them, that influenced them, that invested in them. There was this bickering about what teacher they belonged to and they follow. Was it Paul, the guy writing this letter? Or was it this guy named Apollos who, who had been investing in this church as well? And Paul seeks to address this not by settling the score and telling them once and for all who was the right person to listen to. But rather... Paul wants to get at a, a deeper matter that's going on here. Something that's going on a little bit deeper and that's beyond uh, the fighting that's happening inside the church in order to unify them again. So let's look together here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants, in Christ. That's harsh. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Let's rest there for just a minute. Paul is very concerned that these people of faith, these people who claim to live by the Spirit, are in no way distinguishing themselves from those outside the church, from people that have no claim on the Spirit. I want you to hear this carefully. When Paul is writing here, he is not writing to those outside the church. Paul understands that those outside the church 
have not made this commitment, do not claim to live by the Spirit, so why would their lives look any different? But Paul is saying, for those of you who claim to live by the Spirit, those of you calling yourselves the church, those of you that are people of faith, shouldn't your lives look different? And what he's saying here is that they don't. They don't look any different. Paul spends the previous chapter, chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, really outlining what this means, the difference between living by the Spirit and not having the Spirit, how the Spirit works and moves and those that are attuned to the Spirit and what their lives look like as opposed to those who don't. And Paul is really pointing out here that your lives don't look different. He wants to make it abundantly clear that people of faith, your life should be different. And they should be characterized by this unity that we have found in Christ. This unifying uh, common denominator that is Christ and Christ's love. And instead he sees a church that is divided. He sees a church that has uh, difference in it. And instead of unifying under Christ and accepting those differences, instead they use those differences and drive a wedge even further between themselves by the jealousy that they have of one another and the quarreling that they have over what teacher they should listen to. It widens the gap between them and creates greater division rather than unifying them in Christ. What concerns Paul is not that there actually is difference in the church. What concerns Paul is is not that there are multiple voices investing in this community of faith, multiple voices influencing this community of faith. What concerns Paul is not even that they have a preference of who they like better, who tells the better jokes when they preach. What concerns Paul is that they have let that difference divide them further instead of unifying under Christ. And what concerns Paul here is that they have not grown, they have not matured because of it. Last week, Pastor David spoke about that word a little bit, maturity. A key theme that tends to pop up for Paul as he encourages and empowers people of faith. This idea that our lives are continually developing and growing and maturing. Uh, Pastor David said it this way. I love that really stuck with me. It said, maturity leads to not only setting aside our former ways of tearing one another down, but also adopting new ways of building other, each other up. Maturity is, is, is not only recognizing that impulse to tear down and leaving that behind, but also becoming creative and adopting new ways of building each other up. And the Corinthian church has not matured. In fact, the, the issue here is that Paul really needs to help the Corinthian church understand that a life of faith is not static. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time decision we make to, com- to commit our lives to Jesus that uh, puts us in a new category of people, but that's all we have to do. And that's all, that a life of faith is actually a life that continues to mature. It continues to grow. It doesn't stay looking like it always has. It transforms. To put it another way, a life of faith is a life that is committed to growth. Paul wants the Corinthian church to understand that a life of faith is a life committed to growth. And what's so disheartening for Paul is not that they haven't fully matured and become perfect Christians by now. But that they haven't grown at all. Look back at that passage we just read. Uh, I think we just read one through four. Notice how often Paul uses the word still there. 
I mean, he says he started off, I gave you milk, right? I couldn't give you solid food yet because you were, you were new Christians. You were infants in Christ. But you are still that way. And this is what's so bothersome to Paul. Not that, they, not that they were new Christians, but that they have been new Christians this whole time. And they haven't matured and they haven't grown. When we say yes to following Jesus, when we commit our lives to being builders, our lives will develop and grow. It should be something we strive for, something that we seek, always looking for that next step to take in our faith, to grow and develop. Because a life of faith is a life that is committed to growth. So what Paul has to do here is he notices this. As he sees this community that is not growing, that is still mere infants in crisis, he's got to go back to the basics. He's got to go back to the basics of how growth actually takes place in another human being. And Paul sees that they're really relying on these two teachers, right? And maybe even more, that this, this one person, the, the person that we choose to align ourselves, the person we choose to listen to, the person that we choose to follow, this other human being, that's how, that's how we grow. And Paul's saying, no, you got it all wrong. Growth happens in a different way. Let's look together. Uh, verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. As Paul addresses the division in the church, the bickering and the jealousy, Paul really wants to get at the heart of how growth and transformation take place and who is responsible. And to do so, Paul uses a gardening metaphor. I love that. You see them all throughout Scripture. I love that metaphor. Does anybody in here garden? You don't have to be embarrassed. It's cool. Yeah. Back there in the back, anybody over here? Yeah, yeah. Some of you are really ashamed of your garden, so you're keeping your hand right down here. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, believe it or not, uh, I have tried my hand at gardening a time or two. Uh, I know that's shocking for many, but that's something that I, I got kind of interested in. And actually all started um, in this really unique way. And from then on, if I had a name tag, if I were to give myself a title, uh, I would call myself the accidental gardener. Now, how might one accidentally garden, you might ask? Well, I can tell you. The first experience that I ever had with gardening was I was looking for food in my house. I was rummaging around in the pantry, uh, lots of things that I did not grow myself. And, and I was, as I was rummaging through the pantry, I came across a sack of potatoes. Now, in those potatoes, like we had eaten, most of them love potatoes. They can be anything. They're one of the best foods, uh, most versatile. And I, and I found it. But you know what happens. You've done this before. You have that sack of potatoes, and you got down to, like, two. And you don't know what to do with just two potatoes. And so, like, they get kind of covered up by cereal boxes and chip bags and things like that. Well, I found it. I was like, all right, potatoes. I can make something out of that. So I grab the potatoes out, and I look at them, and they're starting to sprout. And they're getting a little wrinkled. And I probably could have used them. I probably could have figured out something to do with them. But I didn't. And what I did instead of throwing them in the garbage was I thought, you know, I, 
I've heard about when you want a garden one day, which I aspire to do one day, maybe grow a garden, that you have, to, uh, you have to make the soil rich with nutrients. And one of the ways you do that is through like old food and poop and stuff, right? You make compost. <laughs> this is my ignorance in gardening. And so, you know, I, I, I think, well, okay. Well, so what I do is I just take this food, right, and, and I just return it to the earth, and then the earth will like, I don't know, decompose it or something and the soil gets rich. And then later on, whenever I actually get around to it, I'll plant a garden there and it'll be ready, right? And so I take these potatoes and I just waltz outside and there's this little section of my backyard that's kind of walled off from the other sections. I think people call them flower beds or something. There were no flowers in it, nor did it look comfortable enough to sleep on. And so I just took those potatoes and I just threw them on the ground and dusted my hands off and I went inside. Well, Several days later, I'm outside, probably getting ready to mow the grass or, or play with my son or something. And I look down at those potatoes that were sitting there, and I see these little sprouts starting to come up out of them. And I thought, well, what have we here? And so I get down, a little bit of a closer inspection. I kneel down into the dirt, and I look, and I, and I think, hmm. So I grab a hold of the potato, and I gently tug on it. And I realize something is connecting it to the ground. It has rooted itself to the ground. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gardening right now. <laughs> well, what do I do? And so I thought of everything I knew to do as a gardener, which was to the extent of that was just put water on it. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to get some water. I'll sprinkle a little water on it. And then, uh, you know, I, I carefully removed the weeds that were, that were starting to kind of grow up around it so they didn't get choked out. And removed the weeds. I put some water in there. And then I just wait. And I wait. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait, until finally I couldn't stand it anymore. This is like Christmas, right? Like there's something, I know something is happening. I can't see what's happening. I want to know what's going on under there. And so I kneel down because I want to be very careful that if these things aren't ready yet, whatever's going on under there, I don't want to mess it up, right? This is my first time gardening. Like this is there's a lot of pressure here. So I get down on my knees, and I'm like an archaeologist in Jurassic Park, right? Like I'm just carefully dusting away the dirt. To see what's just underneath the soil. And much to my surprise, what do I find? More potatoes. I mean, a victory lap. I mean, I was just flying around my backyard. I was so excited. I was patting myself on the back. I'm kicking in my back door, going inside. Everybody come outside and see what I have done. Look what I have grown. I have provided for my family. We are eating potatoes tonight. And I decided I'm going to call up HGTV, y'all watch that, y'all know, and pitch this new show to him, The Accidental Gardener. And it's going to be a picture of me just doing this and stuff growing up all around me. <laughs> but I realized something in that process, that I actually did very little to make that happen. Even later on, when I actually decide to be a little bit more intentional about my gardening, when I actually decided, like, I'm going to actually clear space, I'm going to uh, till up the earth, I'm going to make it soft, I'm going to choose carefully the things that I'm going to plant based on the things that we want to harvest later, I'm going to make sure that the soil is balanced and nutrient-rich, I'm going to plant them with the right space, I'm going to make sure they're well cared for and watered, free of pests and predators and disease, I'm going to prune away the branches that aren't producing fruit so the ones that are have more of the nutrients and energy. Even when I was as intentional as I could be with my garden, 
I wasn't responsible for that growth. I didn't actually, once I planted the seed, I didn't actually reach inside that seed and pull that sprout out. Or as things began to sprout, I didn't take them and and pull on them and make them longer and then start pulling out the branches and making fruit come out of that. I didn't make any of that happen. All I did was do my best to create an environment that was conducive to the growth. I didn't actually make the seed grow. Now why do I tell you this story? Why would I tell you about my fortunes and follies and, and gardening? I tell you that story because we see this metaphor used throughout Scripture, this gardening metaphor, and as it pertains to our own spiritual growth. And I think they use it because we know that there's a lot that we do. There's a lot that we do to participate in our own spiritual growth and the growth of others. But there's this force There's this thing beyond our control that happens within people. There's this movement in the soul that we cannot control or manipulate, but rather works in the space that we provide it. I tell you this story because as we talk about being builders, as we think about the commitment we might make to to partner with God, to, to be a builder, That might come with a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety to be a builder. As we think about what it might mean and what it might take to be a builder in our workplace, in our families, amongst our friends. And that if we do make that commitment, if we do say yes to the way God's moving and our participation in that, that it might all depend on us. That the success or failure of this building is actually all on you. That this end result, this desired result that we want, God's better world, is actually all on you at this point. And if you're not sure how to build properly, if you're not sure how to do this thing properly, then it's all going to be ruined. It's up to you to not mess it up, right? And furthermore, we might look around in those areas of our life and think, am I going to be the only one? Being a builder is hard when you're alone, when you're the only one doing it. You might look at your workplace, you might look at your family, you might look at your friends. I mean, you look here at church and you look around, you see a bunch of people like all nodding their heads like, yeah, I want to be a builder. I feel that call in my life. That's what I want to do. But you know the second you walk out of here and you walk into some of those areas of your life and you're thinking, none of these people have made that commitment. This isn't a part of their life. How hard is it going to be for me to live into that calling in a place where nobody else has accepted that same calling? It's hard to be alone. It's hard to be a builder when it feels like nobody else is. We could feel isolated in that. We could feel alone and and overwhelmed. And when we do that, When we find ourselves in that place, we often forget that the power to build, the power for growth, the power for change and transformation that we aspire to see in this world and that God wants in this world does not originate in us. That that power to transform, that power to change, that power to grow does not originate in us. Look again at at, at verse 6. I, Paul, planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. God made it grow. Spiritual growth 
the, the building of God's better world, the change that we want to see in the world definitely involves you, but is not dependent on you because you are not capable of it. Only God is. You're not capable of actually making the change or making the transformation or making the growth happen. Only God is. But the part we play is providing the space for that growth to happen. Creating an environment that is conducive for that growth. As we close out this section, I want you to look uh, with me at verse 9 and notice at the very end, Paul does this little tricky thing where he switches metaphors, right? He goes from agriculture to architecture, from growing to building, which actually conveniently fits our theme. Look, at, look with me at verse 9. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. See, the Spirit of God is the master builder. The Spirit is the one who builds, and the Spirit is the one who never stops building. The question that we have for ourselves, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Will the Spirit have any partners in that work? Will the Spirit have any co-workers in building God's better world? Uh, normally I get to preach in, in the well, in the well cafe on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. And, um, and throughout the preaching of that series, and, and I know as David has preached this series too, we have the opportunity to speak with people about this building that they see in their lives, the building that they see taking place in other people's lives and the, and the joys that come with that, some of the struggles that come with that. And I hear over and over again many things that might be shared by some of the people in this room as well. That when thinking about that call to be a builder, some of you might feel this hesitation to say yes to that. You're a little hesitant to commit or to understand your life as a, as a life that helps build because you might feel incapable. You might look around and you see like all these people that are so talented and so skilled and know so much about the Bible or are good speakers or, you know, et cetera, and you just think, I, I, I don't think I'm any of those things. I don't think I'm capable of actually being a part of this. So what I'm going to do is really keep praying for those people, let those people handle that. I'm going to keep doing my bit. I'm going to come. I'm going to faithfully come to church. I'm going to be here and I'm going to sit and I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible. But when it comes to stepping out in faith, I don't think I'm capable of it. Or maybe it's not a question of your capability, but you might feel unworthy of it. You might hear us pastors get up here and, and, and talk about what it means to commit to a life of building with the Spirit of God and participating in the building of God's new world, but you think, not me though. There's something in, in my life, in my past, before I came to this place, before I knew Jesus, that probably disqualifies me from that. I want you to hear this good news this morning. God's not hindered by your shortcomings. God is not hindered by your shortcomings. And also, God's not unleashed by your greatness. God is not hindered by your shortcomings. God is not unleashed by your greatness. But rather, the Spirit of God is unleashed by your faithfulness. 
Come on, hear that. God's not hindered by your shortcomings. God's not unleashed by your greatness. God is unleashed by your faithfulness to the call. And I believe that. Believe me, I do. I, I wrote it. i got to believe it, right? I believe that. But how come if I believe this, if I believe that God truly works through the faithfulness and not our greatness or our shortcomings, if I truly believe that, then how come when I feel the call on my life to step into something I don't think I'm capable of, how come I hesitate? How come I back off a little bit and say, oh, I don't know. I know, God, I feel this call, I feel this nudging in this area, but I, don't, I can't do it. And if I can't do it, then, God, I guess you can't do it. How come I, I, I feel that? How come when I, when I feel this call to say yes to this new thing, this nudge that I've been feeling, I've been hearing pastors talk about it, and I know this is where God is calling me, this next step. It feels uncomfortable. I know this is where I'm going, but I just I don't think I can, so I don't think God can either. How come? Or maybe, how come I think I'm the only one that can do it? How come I think I'm the only one capable of doing the thing that God has called me to do? If you're a, a, a leader in this room, if you've, if you've invested in somebody, if you've uh, poured into them, if you've mentored them and you've prayed for them and you've prayed for the Spirit of God to, to move and work and transform in them and you've seen them grow and you've seen the fruit of their life and you're so proud and you're so excited for that growth and then some other leader or mentor comes along and starts investing and you think, uh-uh, this one's mine. How come I get all messed up when somebody else starts watering the seeds that I've been planting? How come if God is not unleashed by my personal greatness, how come sometimes I get territorial and think that I'm the only one that can invest in that person? And I don't welcome in another voice, another faithful voice that seeks to, to help water or to nurture the seeds which I have planted. Or... How come I might think that the greatness of one other person, one other human, might make the difference in my life? Might be the change that I hope happens in me? How come I put that much stock in one other human individual to, to build up that thing that God wants to do in my life? How come I might think that if I just get the right pastor who can say the right words, if I can get the right teacher, if I can have the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend or the right spouse or the right politician to come into my life, then everything is going to be fixed and everything is going to be right and the transformation and the change I hope to see is going to happen. How come? Rather than trusting that God is the one that is big enough. I want you to have this blue wristband on to look at it. Whose name is on that wristband? It's not my name. It's not your name. But God is big enough. And it's God that we trust with the change and the transformation that we hope to see in the world. And what we do, what we do as part of our faithfulness is we partner with God. We partner with the Spirit to help create the space for the Spirit to move and to work. Our faithfulness to be led. Our faithfulness to trust God as God calls us into these new places that might seem a little scary. 
and a faithfulness that keeps us diligently and faithfully working each and every day, clearing out the space for God to work. As we close with a time of prayer today, I want to I ask you two quick questions. The first is, for those of you in this room that are feeling that nudge, how might God be calling you to faithfully act today? Who are the people in your life, as Pastor David did last week, had you pick five people, choose five specific names of people in your life that you were going to partner with the Spirit and the work that the Spirit of God was doing in their life. How are you acting faithfully today in those names that you have claimed? Or how are you persevering? Those of you that have been, how are you persevering in that faithfulness? How are you trusting God? How are you praying fervently for God's spirit to move and to transform and to show you new ways to step into the lives of others? That you too might be a builder of God's better world. Let's pray together. Holy God, hear our hearts as we seek your presence. God, as we clear space for you to flood into our souls, God, open our ears that we might hear your voice. Open our eyes that we might see the ways that you are leading us, God. Open our eyes to those around us in need of your love and your grace, God, that we too might participate with you. We might partner with you in the building of your better world. God, give us courage to persevere in in the face of disappointment and the patience God, as we faithfully work, the patience to see you move in the ways that you do. In your name we pray. Amen.